Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm your host, John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the centers, Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, the United States will host the ninth summit of the Americas in Los Angeles from June 6th to June 10th. With the advertised theme of building a sustainable, resilient, and equitable future for the Western Hemisphere. Well, much has changed across the hemisphere since the last in-person summit in Lima, Peru in 2018. And for some leaders, the summit will be their first face-to-face meeting with many of their counterparts. Whenever world leaders gather anywhere for anything, expectations emerge. So we're wondering, what should we expect at the summit? And what's been noteworthy in the lead-up to the summit? Here to discuss those questions and more are Wilson Center Distinguished Fellow Cindy Arnson. Hi, John. Hey, Cindy. Brazil Institute Fellow Daniela Campello. Hey, John. Hi, Danny. Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudman. Hey, John. Hey, Andrew. And Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour, John. Chris, great to see you. And we have a special guest today. He's Dr. Richard Feinberg. Richard is a Global Fellow and an Advisory Board Member of the Wilson Center's Latin American Program. And Richard was a principal architect of the first Summit of the Americas held in Miami back in 1994. Dr. Feinberg, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be with you all. So, Richard, I want to come back to you in a moment and ask about then and now. But first, there has been breaking news in the lead up to the summit, all kinds of conniptions about who's going to come and who's not going to come. A couple days ago, it was uh, Andrew, it was AMLO uh, setting terms for his involvement. Could you tell us about those developments? Sure, John. I, I had a feeling you'd, you'd come to me. Um, President Lopez Obrador, as you say, a couple days ago, indicated that if Colombia, Venezuela and Nicaragua were not invited to the summit, that he would not attend. Um, I, I think it's really, uh, first of all, I would say that I, I think when we've talked about this before, when Lopez Obrador is talking foreign policy, he is almost always aiming at a domestic constituency. This is a a, a man who is truly a believer that the best foreign policy is good domestic policy. Um, I I think it's also important to underscore that he did not say that Mexico wouldn't participate. He won't go, but his foreign minister will go. And And I think that's an indication that while he may be trying to make a political statement in terms of who should be invited, he knows that Mexico can't not be there. So I, I think there's sort of a, a positive uh, element of that. I, I think the having just had a virtual bilat with President Biden on April 29th, I, I think it is um, to be charitable, unfortunate that he chose to make this announcement in a press conference instead of conveying it uh, directly to the White House. Um, I I don't think it'll have long-term repercussions on the overall relationship, but I do think um, certainly for those, particularly those who are are staunch defenders of our current Cuba policy um, and and are concerned about Venezuela and Nicaragua, it does um, call into question, I think to some extent it limits the maneuverability of the Biden administration to work with Lopez Obrador because those who are 
strong proponents of our hard line on Cuba will accuse the Biden administration of collaborating with someone who who clearly doesn't share that view. So I, I think problematic, but not ultimately destructive. Well, your observation about playing to a domestic audience would probably explain why he uh, chose the press conference right. route versus the uh, discreet call to the White House. Uh, Richard, I'm going to come back to you. There are others. And Danny, I'm going to ask you about Bolsonaro's decision to, to participate or not in a moment. But first, Richard, if I could come circle back to you. And and we introduce you as being part of the initial summit of the Americas. And now here we are in 2022 trying to do it again. Could you give us some uh, a brief history lesson on the summit and w- the initial conception and then where it's headed today? So, um, you know, to be fair to the Biden administration, uh, we had an, an international and, and regional environment that was much more conducive. Uh, the countries were recently transiting from authoritarianism to liberal democracy. The economies were opening up. Uh, we had just signed uh, the NAFTA agreement that had passed through the Congress. The other Latin American countries came to us and said, we want free of trade. Uh, and so there was uh, both in the economic and uh, political areas, more of a convergence of values and goals. Uh, that's less true today. Okay. On the other hand, I'm astounded at what looks like a lack of adequate diplomacy. Uh, We spent a lot of time making sure that both the Mexicans and the Brazilians were on board. We sent a number of high-level delegations. We uh, asked them what they wanted to have on the agenda. Uh, And so uh, the idea that, you know, a month beforehand, we would suddenly be hearing that they're not interested just could not have happened. So I do think we have to uh, look at the Biden's administration uh, diplomatic uh, uh, failures here. Now, now, having said that, I do think probably what most of the countries are looking for is just to pressure the U.S. into into making an agenda a little more substantive and more aligned with their interests. Uh, now, here's where the Biden administration has gotten itself in, into a pickle. Uh, it's allowed its foreign policy to be clipped by uh, one interest here, one interest there. It can't engage with Cuba because of the, uh, the Cuban exile community in South Florida. It can't talk about trade because of elements of the AFL-CIO and certain the grassroots groups. Uh, so when you eliminate all of these possible foreign policy initiatives, and then the, then the Latins say, well, why show up uh, in Los Angeles? Because the administration is largely empty-handed. So finally, the administration is seeing some of the foreign policy costs of its pandering to certain domestic uh, interests, both economic and uh, and interest group interests. So I think that's where we are. And now the administration's in a tough spot. Is it going to confront a couple of those domestic interests and say, listen, we have to have a success here at the summit and we're just going to have to give the Latin Americans some of the things that they want or hang tough, in which case the potential of a serious diplomatic embarrassment uh, is at the door of the administration. Hmm. So when you would talk about a theme like building sustainable, resilient, equitable future, these are so generic sounding. So it doesn't speak to what you're talking about, the actual agenda and what countries want to talk about. Yeah. Well, so, of course, uh, the administration has made these, uh, you know, that's that's not enough. Uh, people, you know, this is uh, 30 years into the post-Cold War period. People are used to, uh, they've signed hundreds of documents saying all these nice things. They want to see some meat on the bones. So what would that mean? If you're going to talk about uh, uh, international health initiative, sure. 
So far, the administration has not done a, a, a nearly enough on vaccine distribution in the Western Hemisphere, leaving a vacuum that was filled by the Chinese and others. Even if their vaccines aren't as good as ours, still they were there. Ours were much less there. So something, uh, we, we got to put some, some numbers on it. What are we going to do in the health area uh, in Latin America? Similarly, uh, if we're going to talk about um, uh, renewables in the energy area, fine. We need to put together a serious package. All the Latin Americans are seeing that overnight we could come up with 30 to 40 billion for the Ukraine, the Ukraine, mm -hmm. 40 million people, uh, Latin America, 650 million. Uh, we talk in terms of a hundred, few hundred million here and there. We can't even seem to get that out there. Then if you're going to talk about global supply chains, okay, what about them? Yeah, the market will drive some of them to the Western Hemisphere, leaving Asia and Eastern Europe. Uh, but is the administration going to try to accelerate that process? Now, that's not that difficult to put some meat on that bones. You could say the uh, Development Finance Corporation, the World Bank, the IDB, the Exim Bank could help build the necessary infrastructure. We could set up educational partnerships to train the labor force. Uh, we could work with the SMEs uh, through various mechanisms as well. So we could put some meat on the bones. But so far, I think the administration is afraid to talk about anything that some people will say, ah, you're, you're, uh, you're just doing more offshoring. You're costing jobs rather than creating jobs in the United States. And so let's see if the administration has the nerve to, to explain something that some, is not that easy to explain and, uh, and, and push back on some of those criticisms. Um, so that's, that's really uh, it's a political decision that has to be made at the highest levels in the White House. Uh, are they going to make this a success uh, with some meat on the bones on these different initiatives in Los Angeles? Uh, and if not, uh, they're just going to take a diplomatic humiliation and maintain their domestic political positions. The, the discrepancy you point out between the focus on Ukraine versus the lack of focus on the hemisphere, it really it's somewhat stunning to see nations behave like individuals and the inability to walk <laughs> and chew gum at the same time. But that seems to be a thing that is not uncommon. Danny, we've, we've queued up a, a few times the, the role of Brazil and Richard mentioned the lack of coordination with Brazil, uh, the diplomatic coordination. Uh, what is the latest on Bolsonaro's potential uh, non-participation? Thanks, John. Uh, uh, we started, there, there was a discussion about Bolsonaro trying to meet with Biden and finding this as a very first opportunity to be uh, together with them. But more recent news are that Bolsonaro has been thinking uh, twice whether to come or not. So it seems that there's something that the people who are closer to him tend to think he shouldn't come. And then there's the Itamaraty, our uh, diplomats, trying to push him towards coming. And I think that uh, in, in the, when you, you asked me what does Brazil expect from the meeting? I'm not sure what Bolsonaro expects, but I know what he doesn't want to talk about. So he doesn't want to talk about the Amazon, which has just hit another record of deforestation. He doesn't want to talk about the elections uh, that he has been questioning over and over again. Uh, and he's very afraid of having to talk about openly to support the elections, to support the electoral results in 2022. So I think these are the two topics he doesn't want to talk about. And if, if he feels he's going to be exposed uh, into talking about these two topics, that's probably going to be the reason for him not to not to come. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris, the, the Canada has generally been a good partner for the U.S. and supportive of these endeavors. Are uh, what about in this case? Uh, what everyone's describing so far is a potential uh, disaster, maybe hyperbole, but certainly not uh, the kind of success that the Biden administration would hope for. 
Well, I would say the Canadians, John, look at these things in almost two tracks. On the one hand, there's the Latin American agenda, the Western Hemisphere agenda, on which they know they're marginal, but they do have views on democracy, views on development, uh, views on migration, which they would like to, uh, to, to expose at a summit like this. And they see an opportunity to talk to some of their, their partners other than the United States. The other track for Canada is it's a summit. And Canada is in so many different clubs that the U.S. is in, from the G7 to the G20 to NATO. And they're only less than two hours uh, flight from Ottawa to Washington. So they have a tendency to take the long view. And they'll have a, a series of policy priorities that are in the main bilateral. Like they might affect you know, the U.S. policy on Ukraine or other things. And they will just, every opportunity, continue to make those cases. So for the Canadians... They'll win because they'll get to make their case again to more officials, while at the same time, maybe managing things on the Latin American side. Uh, and I think that's given them much more interest in participating and much more willingness to uh, to play a role here. Cindy, I was going to ask you a specific question, but you know what? You've heard enough now that I'll just let you take it where you want to take it. I think despite all the political difficulties that the Biden administration has had getting to the summit, the most important thing will be to show up with something concrete to offer, whether it is a package that includes the U.S. Development Finance Corporation with the IDB and the World Bank, as, as Richard has indicated, you know, a large package of loan guarantees to encourage um, U.S. investment to bring uh, nearshoring to the the area of, of Latin America that's closest to the United States, which would be the broad Caribbean basin, not only Car the Caribbean and Central America and Mexico, but also Colombia and, and Northern South America. Unless there is a concrete offer, I think it's, um, it's not going to be successful. Um, there was a high-level democracy summit that was held late last year. Um, a lot of articulation of core principles of support for democracy, but there is even in, in the Biden administration a recognition that dem democracies have to deliver things that people want. And unless the United States is able to partner in concrete ways with the health sector, with U.S. medical schools, partnering with medical schools in the, um, in the region, I mean, something that is a really bold initiative. Um, and at the same time, as much as there is criticism of the Biden administration for being late and for the lack of coherent messaging around the summit, um, I think there is also a degree of responsibility of the region itself. I have never seen Latin America and the Caribbean more fragmented politically, more incapable of articulating a common vision of how it wants to relate to the United States and the rest of the world. Uh, Canada, even outside the hemisphere. Um, so I, I think that um, it's a very challenging environment that the Biden administration is facing, but it is um, um, critical to show up uh, with, with a concrete offer. Uh, Andrew Rudman, uh, based on everything we've talked about and uh, the potential for this unraveling with multiple heads of state not attending, any chance AMLO gets his way? and the countries that he wants invited that the U.S. Is, could actually back down? That's a, that's a great question, John. It's one I, I, I think I would have also posed. Um, I, I'll throw out a, a thought, and I'm sure my colleagues have other thoughts. It, it strikes me that 
AMLO having sort of drawn the line in the sand, it almost makes it impossible for um, the Biden administration to invite Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela because it would look very much like um, like the Biden administration was allowing the Mexicans to drive the, to make that decision. And in addition, and maybe Richard or Cindy can talk to the fact that we don't, the U.S. doesn't recognize Maduro as the leader of Venezuela. So I'm not even sure technically if if we quote unquote could invite Venezuela if we if we wanted to. But others know more about that than I do. Well, let me say, on, uh, so I think these are three different cases, right? Uh, on, on Venezuela, we already have the Guaido sort of semi-solution. Uh, nobody in the, in the hemisphere supports uh, Ortega. So uh, he could be left out. Nobody would care. Uh, so the issue really only is Cuba. Uh, now, here it's a self-inflicted wound, and this has to do, if Biden had followed what he had said he would do during the, his campaign and go back to the Obama policies of trying to work with Cuba, they wouldn't be in this pickle right now. The Cubans did attend two summits in uh, the last two in, in Lima and in uh, Panama. And let me, I can tell you, I was there and they were, they did not behave as spoilers. They did not try to wreck the proceedings. Uh, they behaved as, as a responsible state actor. Uh, so, uh, yeah. But right now, uh, you know, can they go back? I don't know. It would be difficult. And uh, Menendez and Rubio and all these people would. Uh... Now, let me suggest there are two pieces of the summit. One is, uh, as a number of us have emphasized, there has to be meat on the bones. There has to be something of value substantively in the different key areas. But there's also the matter of massaging leadership and giving them a, a sense of place. And that's where it's difficult with Bolsonaro because, you know, the Democratic Party doesn't like him. Of course, they see him as sort of a Trumpite. Uh, but, you know, you've got to at least be polite. We have to figure some way to engage with him without uh, an excessively warm embrace. With AMLO, you know, AMLO, he has to be the, he has to be the center of attention. He doesn't like multilateral events because he's not at the center of attention. I mean, this, this transcends this particular summit. So you have to give him something which makes him you know, which feeds his narcissism. Now, I've been thinking, uh, uh, why not let him have a big uh, 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 demonstration in the Hollywood Bowl with 50,000 screaming Mexican-Americans, I'm low, I'm low, I'm low. You know, he would love that. So you, you got to give him something that appeals to his uh, his sense of, of persona. So those are the two things. Uh, give these guys a sense of persona, persona, which we don't seem to have put in place, as far as I can tell. And then there has to be meat on the bones on specific initiatives. Actually, I have to, uh, a few questions to Professor Feinberg. Let me, so with the, in the case of Bolsonaro, the, the meat in the bones, the concern that I have is that these two topics are topics that address the very goals of the, the conference, right? Uh, environment, sustainability, and democracy. So how to give them something which is not strengthening him in an agenda that goes exactly against those two uh, goals. And the other question is, uh, what, what is the downside of inviting everyone? Because this is one question that, uh, why not invite everyone and talk about democracy and talk about prospects? Is, is this something that shouldn't be done in your view? That there's a point in, in only inviting democracies? This is not the summit for democracy, right? Okay, so this goes to a broader issue. Um, Originally, uh, and I can take some credit for this because when Al Gore announced the Summit of the Americas in 94, actually in Mexico, uh, on the plane on the way down, uh, it, it, it said, and uh, President Clinton wants to invite all the leaders of the Western Hemisphere. And I said, 
Mr. Vice President, don't you think we should insert all the democratically elected leaders in the Western Hemisphere? And that's how that uh, adjective uh, was inserted. Now, I have to tell you, I wasn't thinking of Cuba because in those years, there was no way you were going to invite, you were going to invite Fidel Castro to any meeting because the media, everything, he would just be the total center of attention. So that nobody even just thought of that. Uh, I was actually thinking of Fujimori, actually in Peru. It was a shot across the bow warning him that if he stepped beyond certain red lines, he would be disinvited. <laughs> so that's actually the origins. But um, as the Canadians would remember, it, uh, finally in Quebec in, 19, in 2001, there it was enshrined that the Summit of the Americas was about democracies. Now, that then was modified when all the Latins demanded, they demanded that Cuba be uh, inserted into the Panama process. And they said they wouldn't attend, even though it was in Panama. So that, that was the uh, gauntlet was thrown down to the Obama administration, and the Obama administration decided, all right, uh, we'd rather have Cuba inside the tent, uh, and we want to have the summits continue because they're important to U.S. foreign policy. So we would ex- we, we bowed to that pressure. Now, that was in the context of uh, Obama completely turning around U.S. foreign policy to Cuba to try a, a policy more of detente or openness. The problem that, uh, that Biden now faces is that he has a very hostile relation with Havana. So it's not a member, uh, 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 Obama had this, you know, this glorious handshake with uh, Raul Castro. Um, Biden can't do that. So Biden's trapped by his own, excuse me, uh, domestic political opportunism. Cindy, if I'm reading my cues right, I think you wanted to say something. By deciding to host the summit for only the second time since 1994, the U.S. government had to pay attention to principles of democracy and also to domestic politics. It makes sense that Maduro of Venezuela and the the Cuban government, the Nicaraguan government are not invited, given what is going on right now um, in the bilateral relationship. And I would say, I mean, Nicolas Maduro um, is uh, being investigated under indictment, um, has had his visa pulled from traveling to the United States, is being investigated for involvement in organized crime, for involvement in crimes against humanity. It makes no sense, on the one hand, to have a summit of democracy and, on the other hand, invite a figure like that to the United States. The same with Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. He threw all of the opposition candidates into jail in advance of the presidential elections last November. How are you going to, with a straight face, invite a a, a figure like uh, like Ortega? But there is a strong um, domestic politics aspect of this, you also can't invite Cuba, um, which has been identified by the Trump administration as a state sponsor of terrorism. The Biden administration has not revoked that that designation, has not revived uh, the Obama policy. And and so, you know, there are real constraints about holding this um, meeting in the U.S., well, the, uh, there have been no shortage of criticisms leading up to the summit as far as the planning, and this panel has certainly echoed that today. And I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish, but in the limited time we have remaining, I want to ask each of you for sort of a best-case scenario as far as expectations. Are there reasonable expectations for tangible outcomes that would be seen as a successful outcome? And I'll give each of you a quick chance to respond to that, maybe about 30 seconds each with time remaining. Chris Sands, can we start with you? Sure, John, and thanks very much. I, I think... 
I think that what will knowing we have low expectations going into the summit, I, I think I'm almost I'm going to advocate we take a Canadian perspective, which is this is one more conversation in a movable feast. We'll see some good connections, uh, but the, nothing will be necessarily final in this in this particular summit. And maybe uh, countries like Canada can move the ball forward on things like democracy on on other issues, and the consensus will broaden a little bit. That will be picked up, whether it's at the G20 or, uh, or, or at one of the future summits coming up. It uh, may not be possible for this to be the summit of all summits, but there will be more summits. And uh, maybe we can get some momentum out of this one rather than giving up on it entirely. So lowering expectations a bit. Andrew Rudman? Sure, John. You know, one thing that, that I, I think maybe there is somewhat more convergence is on the is on the topic of migration and the recognition that it's a hemispheric issue that requires hemispheric attention, right? This is no longer a U.S.-Mexico or U.S.-Central America issue. So um, if we want to try to be optimistic, maybe there is some, at least um, picking up on what Chris said, at least some acknowledgement that the countries in the hemisphere have to address the, the movement of, of people collectively. The other place, maybe there could be some collaboration I'd certainly like to see it is is more focus on learning the lessons of the pandemic, particularly on the health side in strengthening health systems and being better prepared for the future. Those are both probably maybe uh, in the line of lowering expectations. I'm probably being really optimistic, but that's what I would hope for. City Arnson. I think the best way for the Biden administration and Latin America in general to salvage the summit um, is for the United States to offer concrete things to those who have showed up um, and people who have boycotted or have decided for one reason or another not to come might get left out of some of those benefits. But there are a lot of countries that will be there um, and will be there at a uh, senior political and economic level, even if they don't send the, the president. But the way to rescue it and avoid um, embarrassment, frankly, uh, is to show that the United States has something concrete to offer um, to the countries um, of the Western Hemisphere as they try to recover from the pandemic and now face um, this trifecta of new difficulties from rising inflation, rising food prices, rising energy prices. We have to be able to respond to the concrete needs of the countries of our hemisphere. Thanks. Danny Campeo. My best case scenario would be to that the summit brings a view of where uh, Latin America is going after these periods of crisis, uh, very deep crisis where in which the countries are. My less optimistic view, which is somehow optimistic, is that the fact that AMLO eventually does not go, does not give too much leverage to Bolsonaro to go back to Brazil and say, you know, after all I've done in the environment and on democracy, I'm still there in the international arena and talking to Biden and nobody cares. (laughs) Richard, our special gift to our special guest is to give you the final word. Thanks. So I think a lot of very good points have already been made. Uh, Yes, I think we can still have a successful summit. Uh, I think some of these uh, threats to not attend may be useful uh, from the point of view of, I know people working very hard in the uh, bureaucracy uh, on Latin America who have been struggling to get the attention of the senior level officials. Uh, They can use these threats from 
the countries in the region to get their attention and warn them that they've got to put more meat on the bones on these various initiatives we've been talking about, uh, supply chains, uh, global health and pandemics, uh, energy sustainability, uh, migration. Uh, There are... uh, pos- there are things that we can do. We, we know there are things that we can, that can be done. We know that where there are resources that uh, multilateral and bilateral uh, and private sector that can be put behind these initiatives. They got to be properly packaged correctly. Uh, the key leaders have to be given their moment in the sun. And this, uh, so some of the uh, supporters of Lula will not may not be happy if Bolsonaro, you know, is given his due. But that's international diplomacy, you know. Uh, and then there has to be a tremendous improvement in messaging. Uh, they haven't gotten the invitations out, you realize, three weeks before. Nobody seems to understand why. Uh, we haven't gotten enough ambassadors appointed. Well, we know part of the reason, but I think it suggests that Blinken has to make a few phone calls. And he has to tell the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I need this. I needed the $30 billion for the Ukraine, but I need this now, tomorrow. Uh, so uh, there has to be you know, some phone calls made at the very senior levels and a dramatic improvement in messaging. And have a hard time getting that turnout at the uh, Holiday Bowl for AMLO if they don't get those invitations out. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Really, Cindy, Danny, Chris, Andrew, and special thanks to you, Richard, for joining us today. This episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Vassanella, and Zoe Reed, with the assistance of Christina Sadasegovia and Anita Kirschenbaum. As always, thanks to all of you for your great work behind the scenes to make us sound good on the microphone. Uh, We hope you enjoyed today's discussion and that you'll choose to join us again soon for our next episode. Until then, for America's 360 and the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for your time and interest. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.